today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. We talked at length uh, last week in regard to the encounter with CNN's uh, John, uh, sorry, uh, Jim Acosta and the president. Uh, it resulted in uh, Acosta losing his credentials to uh, cover the White House and security clearance and such. As a result of all of that, CNN uh, has now announced that they're suing the White House in regard to all of this and revo- uh, revoking Jim Acosta's pass. Uh, and I guess, can we be surprised? We're going to play you the encounter one more time. This is, uh, I guess, what started it all when Jim Acosta was asking the president at a press conference at the White House. And uh, They're hundreds of miles away, though. They're hundreds and hundreds of miles away. That, that's I not an invasion. Should, honestly, uh, I think you should let me run the country. You run CNN. All right. And if you did it well, your ratings well, let me would be ask, much if better. I, if I may okay, ask one enough. other question. Mr. President, if I may, if I may uh, ask Peter, one other ahead. question, are you worried? That's enough. That's M- enough. Mr. President, I, well, that's I was going to ask one of the, the other folks. That's had, enough. Pardon me, ma'am. I'm, I'm, Mr. Excuse President, me. That's enough. Mr. President, I had one other question, if I may ask, on the Russia investigation. Are you concerned that... That you may have I'm not concerned about anything with you the may have Russian investigation because it's a hoax. Are you, That's enough. Put down the mic. Mr. President, are you worried about indictments coming down in this investigation? Mr. President. I'll tell you what, CNN should be ashamed of itself having you working for them. You are a rude, terrible person. You shouldn't be working for CNN. Go ahead. I, I think that's unfair. You're a very rude person. The way you treat Sarah Huckabee is horrible. And the way you treat other people are horrible. You shouldn't treat people that way. Go ahead. In, in, go in ahead, Jim, Peter. Go in, ahead. In Jim's defense, I've traveled with him and watched him. He's a diligent reporter who busts. Well, his I'm not a big fan of us. yours either. So I understand. To be honest. So let, me, so let me ask you a question, if I can. You repeatedly you said. Aren't, you aren't the best. Mr. President, you repeatedly, over the course okay, of. Okay, just sit down, please. Well, when you when you report fake news, no. When you report fake news, which CNN does a lot, you are the enemy of the people. Go ahead, Mr. President. All right, there you have it again. Uh, it's just painful to listen to the second time or third or fourth time as it was the first. Uh, let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, with us now. Michael, you must just cringe when you hear that still. <laughs> Not as much anymore. I've heard it so many times now, Scott, that I'm kind of used to it. And I actually do find the line that Trump said to, um, I believe it was either the ABC or NBC reporter who tried to defend Acosta. And then Trump sort of swatted him away by saying, well, I'm not a big fan of yours either. I still do find that part of it very funny. <laughs> How can the Republicans not be anything but embarrassed on this? I know you have a different take than I do on this. Sure. Uh, um, uh, again, whether you agree with, with CNN in their, their angle on all of this and how they cover the president, that's one thing. But how can a president stand there and treat a a person in the press corps this way? I mean, I I know your thoughts are, are different. Let's hear it. Well, yes and no. I mean, you're actually putting it in a different puzzle. I don't have an issue that CNN looks at this presidency, the White House, and Republicans in general in a different way. They always have. Since the network was first created in the 1980s by Ted Turner, they've always taken a liberal point of view, which is perfectly fine. I don't have an issue with that. In a democracy, we're supposed to have intellectual discourse and free thought and differences of of opinion. The problem specifically is more with Jim Acosta. I've just found that over the past couple of years, he's handled himself more and more poorly as time has gone along in terms of journalistic integrity and just the day-to-day operations that a reporter is supposed to have or supposed to conduct with anyone, be it a senator, a House representative, or in this case, the President of the United States. And I don't think that actually this 
shall we say, controversy or tete-a-tete, if you like, was really the reason for all this. I think it was actually the straw that broke the camel's back with Acosta. He has just been, you, you can go through YouTube, you can go through various sites that have little clips of interactions he's had with Donald Trump since he became president in 2016. It's just been a bad relationship by both men, in fairness. They both handled each other very, very poorly. But the rationale is that really I think that Trump and a lot of the people around him in the White House had just finally had enough and they pulled his credentials because, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about it, whatever specifically happened with that White House intern who was trying to take the microphone away from him. I think that was really the end result of everything that occurred there. But would, should Republicans be embarrassed by this? No. I mean, it's a question of whether Republicans feel that they continue to support freedom of the press, which I think most of us do, and whether we basically put Jim Acosta's behavior and professional etiquette in that realm, or if we regard him as something separate, and more importantly, something separate to CNN as an entity and their other staff members. And I think that's where, at least in my mind, I can justify it. If they did it, if basically the White House had said CNN was banned at the same time Jim Acosta was banned, that would be a step too far. To do it to Acosta actually makes perfect sense to me. (laughs) Uh, Who's acting less professional, Acosta or the president? Well, you see, that's the nice thing about being president of the United States. Even though we assume and expect him or her to be professional, uh, they really are not subservient to anyone other than the voters every four years. So they have to conduct themselves in the way they feel is best. So whether you like Donald Trump or whether you hate him, he is not technically an em- he's not an employee. He's only really a quote unquote employee of the voting public. Jim Acosta is an employee for CNN, which means that his role has to be different. Plus, his relationship with the president, with the White House, or any politician in the United States has to be different as well. You I would think, Michael, though, that the standard that CNN, I assume, has when they either sign the contract or hire employees. I would think that uh, the, the public would want uh, higher standards from the president than a reporter for CNN. I, I would think that they would expect the president to take the higher road. Well, then fire him in two years. That's the option they have. They can fire him, quote-unquote, in 2020 by, by basically kicking him out of office. That's the way that people get to express their point of view about any president, whether it be Donald Trump or whoever ultimately his successor is. So are you, comfortable, two are, are you comfortable with the president speaking to the press that way? And, no, I'm and... not comfortable at all. What I, I, as I said before, both Trump and Acosta have handled their relationship in a poor manner. They really have. Both of them have acted unprofessionally at times to one another. And I think that this just been getting worse and worse. And eventually, at some point, this was going to explode, so to speak. And this was the issue that eventually caused it. I think that if there hadn't been uh, this tussle with the White House intern, and, you know, I know that there's this different film that's floating around that may come from InfoWars and everyone's sort of trying to figure out whether it was doctored or not. But it certainly is true that most reporters, when approached by someone from the White House, be it a young intern, male, female, etc., they would actually probably, they wouldn't have stuck out their arm to try and stop or prevent 
it being taken away from them, and they would have been irritated, maybe talked about it on their respective TV network, radio station, or if they write for newspapers and magazines, and done it that way, rather than sort of doing it out in public. I think the tensions have been pretty bad between these two, that being Trump and Acosta, for so long, that unfortunately... It just sort of reached the stage. Where I, I think I think the American I think the American that he might actually try to do it to other reporters, such as April Ryan, for example, has been right. isolated. If this becomes more than an isolated incident with Jim Acosta, that could be problematic in my eyes. I think most Ameri- and I don't know because I'm this is just my point of view, but I think most Americans will hold the president to a higher a- account than they will a reporter, and I think most would look at this. Who cares how irritating this man is? Who cares what the history is? You know, who cares? That's his job, whether it's the, from the point of view someone agrees, about, uh, agrees with or not. The point is he's the president of the United States, and he should show more respect than anyone for that position, and including how he handles the press corps. You can't call people racist because you don't like the question that they're asking. Sure. Of course not. But unfortunately, this is what you get by electing Donald Trump. And I think a lot of people assumed that you were going to get someone who marches to the beat of his own drummer and has no political filter, is not politically correct, and handles things in a very different manner than previous presidents before him. So that is unfortunately part of it. I'm not justifying it. No, I know. I'm saying it's over two years. By now, Scott, and I'm sorry to interrupt, we've got to be used to this by now. And if you're not used to us, what in God's name have you been watching for the past couple of years? I don't think we have gotten used to it getting to the point that it has the last week or so. And I think it frightens people because, again, as you mentioned, the next question is, what's the next step? What's the next rung up the ladder? What's the next move he'll make? Because nobody can believe he's got this far. I think that's the question, too. I mean, I don't think we can just say, well, that's Donald Trump. Just watch him continue doing what he's doing and, and ramp it up. Well, there's not much he can really do. I mean, he has been fighting with the press literally since day one. He's literally been fighting with everybody. He's been fighting with everybody since day one. For the GOP, for the, for the, for in their presidential leadership race. It's so, been going on, it's been going on yeah. for close to three years. Well, again, he's been fighting with everyone for, for close everyone. to three years. Anyway, my, uh, so where do you think this is going? What happens now with this? Because, obviously, CNN's going to take it to court. My goodness, this is sure. their job. They're going to sure. milk this for everything they can. How so does, they already how, are. I mean, it's their top story on their website, which is some people suggested looks rather ludicrous that CNN is reporting about a CNN story. But I don't know. Some may not think this ludicrous when the president is kicking people out of the press. Some may think this is very, very serious. Anyway, well, my, my question is to you, what happens from now? Because obviously CNN's going to milk this, but how is the White House going to handle this as this moves forward? What, what do they well, do? Well, I mean, it, it, you know, obviously I'm not privy to their strategy if they have one, but... Um, we have to keep in mind, one, it's only involving one reporter. Yes, I have suggested, and others have suggested, too, does, will this become a pattern? And I guess what will probably happen is it'll be determined by this lawsuit. Um, CNN has two parts of the lawsuit, as you may or may not have discussed on air. The first one is to get a temporary injunction against the White House so that Mr. Acosta's press pass is given back to him. The second one part of it would be to create permanent relief, that being 
that his press card would be brought back to him permanently and that this matter would be finished once and for all in the courts and possibly that some determination would be created or possibly some new language to sort of try to cipher or figure or decipher or figure out what needs to be done in terms of the relationship going forward between a president and the press. So the lawsuit will probably determine the White House's actions, President Trump's actions, and possibly the relationship between this White House and the media going forward, whether it's for another couple years or a second term if Donald Trump wins in 2020. So CNN's going to milk it for all it's worth. I completely agree with you. They already are, and they have been since Acosta lost his press. And, and Michael, many, many think they should be, because many are concerned when the president starts kicking people out of the press corps. It's one person, Scott. Easy. We're not, we're not at many. I know what he has said, but the man also throws out trial balloons like crazy, and he backs off certain things as well. I know he has suggested that he would do it to others. April Ryan has not been directly targeted, but she did have, I think he followed up with a tweet about her just after that one that he put out, and some people have been putting two and two together. And it may equal four in this instance, I'm not denying that. But I, I do, so far, no other reporter has either been kicked out or, has, or there's been no threat to kick them out as of yet. The problem for me is whether Donald Trump is just doing this with the, I wouldn't call him necessarily a thorn in the side, but a person he's been jousting with almost nonstop for over two years that finally he's tired with and he fell crossed a line a few days ago, which quite frankly, and it's not just conservatives, some people recognize that Acosta has been really walking a thin line for quite a while now. So it's not terribly shocking it reached this stage. And, but at the same time, I agree with you. I mean, do we want to have a president who is going to ban reporters and ban others or even ban networks that he doesn't particularly like, that would be a horrifying president. With this one particular reporter in this one instance, I don't have a big deal with it because Jim Acosta has not been a shining beacon of light on the industry that I actually work for as well, and I don't hold him up as someone that, some, that we should basically be idolizing, to put on a stand as the example of how the press should operate itself or or operate itself under the circumstances of working with or asking questions to a particular leader. I just think that Acosta has been way below the standard most of us have set. And while there are many other reporters in that press pool who are opposed to Donald Trump and have had, you know, their little tete-a-tetes with him, it has never reached the stage it has reached with Jim Acosta. And that's honestly why I think he was isolated. Uh, How do you think this is going to bode for the White House? in the sense that if I'm in that press corps, I'm going to go in there and ask the same question Jim Acosta did. Mm -hmm. Why not? Well, they can. They have that right. I don't know if uh, other networks are willing to take that gamble. Take the gamble for what? It might be interesting to sort of see what... Why would they have to take a gamble, Michael? Why would I have to sit... See, that's intimidating the press corps. I'm not going to follow up and ask that guy's question because he got kicked out for it. That's not right, Michael. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is that the... the, Let's say it's NBC, CBS, or ABC, for argument's sake. They may choose to ask difficult questions to Mr. Trump but they're not going to necessarily take it to the point where Jim Acosta is always interrupting, always speaking above the president, and acting unprofessionally at times in a way that, quite frankly, a lot of left-leaning reporters sitting in that press pool have not done. They don't need to be automatons. They don't need to be duplicates of Jim Acosta. 
continue to ask the difficult questions. That's what presidents have to deal with. They have to deal with tough press conferences and tough questions. And if Donald Trump doesn't like that, well, he shouldn't be president of the United States. The question is whether the professional demeanor of Jim Acosta, which I think has gone way overboard over the past couple of years, not that he was ever perfect to begin with years ago, but has seems to become a lot worse or become triggered during the Trump era, whether someone like a Jim Acosta is just an isolated example in the press pool, or we're going to have a whole bunch of Jim Acostas. My sense is going to be the former, that he's just the one example, and no matter what happens to his press pass, I don't think you're going to necessarily see other reporters handle things differently because each one of them has their own individual style. Uh, let's talk about uh, what happened with the Remembrance Day scenarios in France and such and, sure. and Donald Trump's reaction uh, to French President Macron's uh, talk of you know old demons rearing their heads, that sort of thing, right. nationalism and such. What are your thoughts on, on how that weekend went down? Well, two different stages. Um, I guess the first part was, obviously, Mr. Trump got a lot of criticism, <clears throat> pardon me, for not showing up at the, uh, the U.S. cemetery plot for the fallen World War I soldiers. And a lot of people were saying, well, why wasn't there a contingency plan in effect? You know, he basically said that he was unable to go in, you know, possibly causing a traffic jam in, in Paris. The weather was cited as a problem. And people just didn't understand including myself, that, you know, why wouldn't there be another contingency plan? There's always usually a plan A, B, or C if the original one doesn't work, and there should have been something in place. And yes, other world leaders, including Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, somehow trudged their way over. But as Trump has said in a tweet today, and this is the one thing I'll give him a little tiny bit of a caveat on, he has suggested that he was advised not to do certain things by his own staff or by people around him because of possible security concerns, weather, etc. If it was all about others advising him improperly, then they're the ones who are really guilty of not looking at this strategy properly and doing, like most travel and tourism departments of most world leaders do, ensuring that you at least have then a plan D or a plan E or a plan F, have a whole bunch of them in place just in case something like this happens. So if it is all true that Trump did suggest other ways to do it and they said no, well, that's a real problem in this White House and they need to get it sorted out. In terms of his relationship with uh, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, and the fact they sort of had battles over the issue of what a nationalist is, uh, discussions about, you know, tariffs unfortunately popped up, especially on products such as wine. Um, unfortunately, Donald Trump loves to have relationships with certain world leaders, including ones who claim to be or act outside the box, so to speak. But when push comes to shove and he starts dealing with them, he always seems to find himself fighting with them at certain points in time. And while people, for example, say how buddy-buddy he is with Vladimir Putin of Russia, and certainly at times he has tried to be, he's also had huge issues with him. He's tried to be buddy-buddy with Kim Jong-un of North Korea. We just had a report the other day that the North Koreans are still building nuclear silos and things all over the country at 16 before, or at least I don't think they were before, unidentified spots. So Donald Trump, unfortunately, just has this habit of trying to create these great friendships, then he has big fights with them, then he makes up and he starts again. This just may simply be a pattern with him. We even saw it a little bit 
um, over this past weekend when he was shaking the hands of a whole series of world leaders, you know, just when he was coming up to the stage to be, for photo ops, for speeches, discussions, etc. And the one person he missed, not surprisingly, was Justin Trudeau, who was sort of looked, who was looking at him to do something. Trump looked away, and basically we sort of know where their relationship is at right now. It's childish. I agree with you. But it's a childish nature that, unfortunately, a lot of politicians would privately like to engage in, but publicly don't. The difference here is that Donald Trump is more than happy to do it in public, and that just doesn't look good on him, whether you like Donald Trump or not. Michael Tobis went with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to The Washington Times. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk race and bring in Eric Thomas, Raceline Radio Network. You can hear, of course, here Sunday nights on CHML. David Pearson, NASCAR pioneer, referred to as the Silver Fox. Him and Richard Petty, uh, old-timers, duked it out and I think finished first and second more times than anyone else. Uh, The legend has passed away at age 83, and Eric is with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Not at all. I'm glad there's not too many pantless samnambulists walking around. (laughs) <laughs> I don't think David Pearson was a sanambulist, was he? Which is a fancy name of saying uh, sleepwalking. Uh, that on the you're going to have to go to the uh, website, pal, and read the story because it would take <laughs> way too long to explain it here. You know, uh, l- let me do this first because I, I, I'm really glad that we're talking about this because when I first started back when I was, you know, quite young, understanding, you know, what role racing was going to play in my life and my career you know, and understanding NASCAR and, of course, appreciating the dominance of Richard Petty, you know, 200 wins and seven championships and seven Daytona 500 wins and how good and how dominant he was. I was always looking for that guy that could get in there and skate with him, you know, to keep him honest. And David Pearson from Whitney, South Carolina, was that guy. So when I was just coming up in my formative years, as they say, I was a huge, huge David Pearson Wood Brothers Ford fan. And, you know, the fact that we've, we've just lost him is, is kind of sad. But he was inducted. I'm going to play this here because I'm going to set it up for you. Uh, he was inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame in 2011. This is David Pearson we're talking about. And he thanked two people. He thanked the Wood Brothers and he thanked Richard Petty. I'm going to let you hear it. Here we go. And Leonard Wood, I'd have to say that that is the smartest man in the world right there. If they need anything for that car and they couldn't find it or couldn't buy it, he made it. And I want to thank Richard Petty, too. He's probably the one that made me win as many as I did, you know. I, I would run hard because he'd make me run hard, you know. I've had more fun running with him than anybody I've ever run with because I know if I ever went to a racetrack and he was there, if I could beat him, I'd win the race. Wow. Love the accent. Yeah, it, you know, I remember there was a story because he kept winning at Charlotte. 11 and, consecutive poles at yeah. Charlotte because he was a ferocious qualifier. And Humpy, Humpy Wheeler, the promoter at the track, and, yeah. and whoever was involved there decided they were going to change the track or remove a bump or something like that. <laughs> so they configured or changed the a corner of the track and, and whatever. And then he came back the next race and won that too. Yeah, he did. And Humpy says, like, what's going on? He goes, wrong corner. You fixed the wrong <laughs> You took out the wrong bump. And Humpy, oh. Humpy would have been steaming over that, but then he'd laugh yeah. about that. Yeah, but you know, and, and he, as I say, he was a ferocious qualifier too. I mean, you know, when you, he won eleven poles in a row at Charlotte at that one track, and that record still stands, which is amazing. He won three NASCAR championships, but the oddity of it was Scooter that he never ran a complete schedule. He was still, you know, a part-time driver in yeah. in most people's observance. 
and and uh, he won 105 races in 573, 74 starts, something like that. Second only to Petty, he won titles in 66, 68, and 69. The, with the Wood Brothers, Glenn and Leonard, they won 43 times, including the 76 Daytona 500. And, um, you know, one of the, the greats of all time. Called the Fox because of his, his, his slyness and his cunning on the racetrack. And then, when he, of course, when he got older and his, and his hair started to turn white, they called him the Silver Fox. But um, one, of, one of my favorites, he goes back, you know, look at the old pictures, you know, in some of those cars back in the late 50s into the 60s, driving with an open face helmet and shirt sleeves. And a cigarette lighter. And a cigarette lighter. <laughs> <laughs> Tell that story because I remember Dick Trickle carried that on into the into the eighties, well past it was legal. I remember when he because David uh, David Pearson sort of never really retired. He just stopped because he had back issues, and then he got back in the car. Yeah, and, and I think he was um, I think he was out for like two or three years, and then got back in one of the Wood Brothers cars and yep. ran a time that would have put it on the pole like he never got out. <laughs> but he's standing there and he's or he's sitting there and he's in the seat with the steering wheel off and he's trying to put the the yep. belts on and he's got a butt hanging oh, out of his mouth. As most of them did back in the It's, it's hilarious. And I understand that he would he would make the pit crew put a lighter in the car so he could have a butt during cautions. <laughs> you could back in those days it was loosey goosey. But in all seriousness, Glenn and Leonard Wood, who he's most you know synonymous with, these are the guys who invented the fast paced, coordinated yeah. Pit stops that you see nowadays. Before, when they came in, you could get out and have a shower and a sandwich and get back in. But, you know, the Wood Brothers figured, you know what, the less time we spend in the pits, the more time we're going to be on the racetrack competing and holding our position. So these are the guys who invented the lightning-fast, coordinated, you know, pit stops that you see today. And And the fact of the matter was, this is back in what I call the golden era of NASCAR stock car racing, where... You simply took a car off the showroom floor that the manufacturer put there, OEM, original equipment manufacturer, mm-hmm. and you raced that. So if you raced a Ford that year or a Mercury, you raced that shape steel. If you raced a Dodge or a Buick or a Pontiac or whatever you ran, a Chevrolet, you ran that car. If the thing was a pig and didn't move through the air really well, you didn't win races. Now all the cars are the same shape. Yeah. You know, yeah, and, and yeah. this is this goes back to the time where you know, you put a roll cage in it, painted, you know, welded up the doors, knocked the knocked the side windows out of it and, and whatever you needed to do, painted a number on the side and away you went. Scooters, why they called it stock car racing. Can we go back to that now or is it impossible just simply for safety reasons? Because I think that's how we got to where we are. Well, right? yeah, too, and also because the manufacturers started going with front-wheel drive cars. That's another real reason why they're they're yeah. not stock cars anymore because we convert everything automatically to rear wheels. I don't know if you you can do that. It, it, I, something it was at the end of an era, I suppose. Yeah. And when when the manufacturers really started to go to unibodies away from frames, you know, and and really started to change the way the cars were sprung, they really weren't, to be honest, practical to move ahead. You know, as a stock car, you just couldn't do that anymore. Back in in David Pearson's day and Richard Petty's day, back in the heyday of the '60s, even into the '70s, you know, the the car had a separate body, had a separate frame, right. and you could set that up with racing equipment. You really just can't do that now. So now they're all purpose built with you know, poly, you know, chrome molly tubing, and they build the chassis from the ground up, and they put a body on it that is mandated by NASCAR to be a a certain shape. And the only difference is is in the headlight decals on the front of maybe the grill opening yeah. and maybe the a pillar angle but other than that they're basically all the same shape but i mean you're talking about you know comparing two different eras and it's not only drivers yeah. like pearson it's also the machinery 
Uh, interesting story uh, from the NHL in the past 24 hours in regard to concussion yeah. and, and settlements and this sort of thing. We've seen this go through uh, the NFL as well. Obviously, uh, combative sports, th- there's going to be this sort of thing. Yep. Very, very similar to car racing in the sense that, you know, when you get in there and you're doing over 320 kilometers an hour, <laughs> you could end up with very, very serious injury, guys, including... The including Dale Jr. retired. Exactly, including yep. concussion. Yep, so exactly. what do we do? Do we... Do we um, do, do fans still want to watch this knowing, yep. you know, because I'm thinking people in the, in the NFL, I heard a commentator say, you know, do fans just want to sit there and watch these guys continually well, kill themselves? And well, I'm thinking, is that any different no. than the argument when they say, well, why does a guy strap himself in a car and go around in a circle? Well, I, yeah, I know what you're doing. You're, you're, you're paralleling it, and I suppose there is some parallel there. But, but the at the ring, end of the day, it's sport and it's dangerous. Well, yeah, but at the same time, you can't kill your guys. You, yeah, can't, yeah, you, yeah. Really, you realistically can't do that. So NASCAR and IndyCar and, and even Formula One, have very, very strict pro- uh, protocols in terms of concussions. If you make any contact with the wall at all or anything stationary with your race car, you're immediately taken to the clinic. You're immediately taken to the hospital in the infield, and they check you out. And if they think you've got your bell rung, you don't get back into that race car until your bell isn't ringing anymore. You know, they just don't put you back into that car. And if it gets bad enough, and listen, I'm going to tell you, there are more guys out there, you know, let's just talk about NASCAR when we're talking about Pearson, there's a lot of guys out there that have been concussed and been yeah. concussed again. Yeah. And, it, you know, and then they make the decision, like Dale Jr. did, you know, that he's had enough of that and he's not going to do that anymore yeah. and risk his own life and his health for that and his wife and his, his baby and his family. So you know, it, it gets to the point where they're not going to let you get into that car if you're concussed, and they're going to watch you, and they're going to keep very close records on what's happened to you. And if they don't think it's safe for you to get back in there, you don't buckle in. And it's as simple as that. So uh, here we are with this sport, and uh, you know I'm a fan of it. But that being said, attendance is dropping. Yep. What's the key here? Is it back to short tracks? Again, we've yep. said we've said a long That's time ago, the mile and a half thing is killing this. Oh, yeah, and, and whether they're all different yeah. or not to the yeah. fan on TV, it appears that they are the same. Well, So is that what we're going to see, the, yeah. the rush back to more short track stuff? What do you think NASCAR bought ARCA? Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> you know, you know mm-hmm. maybe some of them will be dirt. Who knows? I doubt it. But it'd be kind of neat if they did. I mean, the racing isn't any good with these cars on the mile-and-a-half tracks. just isn't. And then, of course, the anomaly of plates at bigger places like Daytona and at Talladega. So they've got to do something to increase the entertainment value. And I think that also includes something I've been riding and beating to death is the races are too flipping long. Yeah. You know, you're not going to have fans sitting in the stands or on TV watching this thing when the races are approaching four hours. Yeah. Can't do that anymore. And they're going to have to, again, they're still getting gouged at, at, at racetrack locations where the hotels yeah. jack their rates up for hotels yeah. five times the yeah. normal room rate. Yeah. Restaurant meals go through the roof. You cannot gouge people like that anymore. When the racing on the track ain't that great all the time, you're not going to get fans to go out there and get robbed. It yeah. just isn't going to happen. So they, they need not only to change the, prese- the presentation in the ring, in the circus, they need to make sure that that other hosing at hotels and restaurants around the racetrack locations doesn't happen anymore. I mean, you know, do, do, you, do you use the word greed? I don't know. It's just that fans now prefer to sit in their homes, but then again, they're not going to do it for three to four hours, and that's why their TV ratings suck. 
you know, and I'm yep. sorry to use that term, but that's what it is. And they've and you know they have shortened some of the races, but not enough. And and I still think, sadly, that NASCAR has this idea. Well, we're the kings of the castle, and we can do this. You know, this, this playoff. You know, we're getting to the end of this playoff. Did we need the chase? Did we need the playoff? Go back to when we first started talking about this. Did they not just need to add more points for a win if they wanted to emphasize win, uh, uh, emphasize winning rather than you know possibly getting into and winning the championship when you don't win any races? That's all they had to do. But they had to kill a housefly with an atomic bomb <laughs> and put us and put us through this playoff nonsense. But it's the system we have, so you have to use it. Now we have this playoff thing, and you got an elimination bracket thing that looks like the NCAA. You know, I I don't think. It needs to be complicated. Then you and I get into this hot potato argument about what the devil is wrong with finishing races under yellow. Hmm. You know, and then put this art of too much manipulation of the races. They don't let the races evolve naturally. You and I could kill a couple of buckets of beer arguing about this. I have one way of looking at it. You have the other one. You know, all of a sudden fans feel cheated if they don't see the race end under checker, yet you've got four or five attempts at finishing a race, that's manipulation, Scott. Yeah, good point. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and, I, and I'm not a fan of that. And I think when NASCAR gets serious to make some adjustments this way, you know, I, I think that, that maybe the fans will come back. But they've they got to stop gazing at their own navels and watch the show. I mean, you're looking at races now on television. <laughs> The race at Texas was all the place was just about empty. I know you that's know, sad that's during bad, the chase. That, yeah, and sponsors don't want to see that. Yeah. And then the sponsors are going to get jumpy mm. because the TV ratings aren't there and the attendance at the racetracks is crummy. They've got to make some serious changes, and I really hope they do. Who's going to win, Harvick? He's the hungriest. Or uh, uh, Martin Truex Jr. Well, my I suppose emotionally with with Cole Pern being his Canadian crew chief, I'm uh, you know I'm all for Truex winning two in a row. But when you got Tony Stewart and you got Harvick, and they take away his win at Texas, yeah, good <laughs> he's, luck. he's in there by points. He's going to be out there looking and, and hunting for bear because I think he's the hungriest of them. Logano could surprise you. Never bet against Penske. Holy cow! So this is going to be a really interesting final run at Miami Homestead. But if you ask me to pick a favorite who I think will win it mechanically, I think it'll be Harvick. Who do I want to win at Truex? Eric Thomas, Raceline Radio Network, heard, of course, here Sunday nights. Quick guest. You got anything you want to promote real quick? Well, we're going we're gonna to get some sound with the eventually crowned NASCAR Cup champion from the media center, and we'll stick that on the air as well, along with Marcus Erickson. He's the new guy with Hinchcliffe at uh, SPM uh, on the IndyCar side. And, of course, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up the NASCAR season, and we'll do it 8 o'clock Sunday night right here on uh, Raceline Radio on uh, AM 900 CHML. Eric Thomas, thanks as always. Much appreciated. Always a pleasure, Scooter. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Board games. Are you a gamer? Gamer means totally different thing now than it did. Boy, this is going to sound old. In my day. As a matter of fact, I have still the original Monopoly game that I was given to by my parents at Christmas way back. I don't know. Maybe 10 years old? Because we used to play it at my cousin's house. They're older than I am. And I loved it. The thimble. I was always a little race car. I loved that. But yeah, people now don't know what a thimble's even used for. I had to think about it for a minute. I think my mom had one once. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, so there's been a bazillion different editions of Monopoly that have come out over the years. But 
I still like the original. And oddly enough, my kids go nuts playing this game. And still to this day, the old board, the money, everything, it's, you know, I'm playing this game with my kids like 40 years later. The same game that I played. And we've got various versions of Monopoly over the years, you know, the electronic debit card. They're like in the closet. They don't. I think they were regifted in some form. But now there's something completely different. A new version of Monopoly for millennials, this edition targeting anyone under the age of 30 who may not relate to the original version. Or even what the objective is. Usually they kind of alter it, alter it for technology and, and progress and where we are. But I'm thinking this game, the whole game seems to be different, I'm thinking, this time. Let's bring in Konstantin Barrieltev, uh, owner, Board Game Central, located in Jackson Square and with us now. Konstantin, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Hello, Scott. Thank you for having me. So, first of all, what is the universal appeal of Monopoly? Why has this game lasted so long? Well, for, even for me, I think Monopoly was the very first board game I tried. Obviously not the last, but I still have a copy as well, just like you. I have my very first copy that I got, and I keep it. And I think it's like, because it's appeal just universal to people, hey, owning things, buying things, trading things, it's a social aspect, and people love it. So what is the difference between the original version and the millennial version? I mean, it seems like it's more, it, it, it's, it's less about the pieces and things that people can identify with and, and how you're banking or whatever. It seems like almost the objective of the game is different, is it? It is. Uh, when I heard news a couple of days ago about it, because we usually keep an eye on it uh, to see where, whenever a new Monopoly comes out, and when I saw news about this one, I thought it was a joke for a bit because I'm like, why does it need to be the social monopoly for millennials? And then I started to read about it, checking suppliers and everything. I'm like, no, it's real. And now we have to get gather experience like, you know, sleeping on a couch with a friend or I guess going for brunch. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't really know if this is something that millennials, because I'm a millennial myself. I'm born 1988. So I'm looking at this Monopoly and I'm like, is this something that I would want? Is this something that I would relate to? Does sleeping on a friend's couch have the same appeal as buying Boardwalk or Park Place? Uh, I don't think so. And uh, it's kind of weird that they would think that we millennials don't want to buy a house. <laughs> it's more like, yeah, just make the prices higher from original Monopoly and yeah. here we go. You know, Constantine, you bring up a valid point. So do you think it's actual millennials that came up with this game, or do you think it's old people trying to figure out what the heck millennials want? Well, it does have a feel for me that it's somebody who doesn't really relate much to the millennials decided to make this game. Because, as I said, like most of the millennials who I know would say that, no, we still want it all. We still all, we all want to own the house. We all want, you know, do all the things. And I don't know, old cautionary friend's couch is cool and fun, but it's not like a goal or objective in a life. <laughs> That's a very valid point. I mean, at the end of the day, the fun is in obtaining all of this. Where's the fun in living your real life and the stuff that depresses you? If anything, it's a, a little bit sad and you're kind of like, hey, millennials, just so you know, you cannot buy a house, but... You can crush on the couch, you can go for brunch, you know, maybe a concert, <laughs> that's what you can afford. 
It's like, forget about it in the house. That's a dream. Oh, man. So the tagline, forget real estate, you can't afford it anyway, just enjoy your life while you can. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. And it's uh, it's funny in the same time. And to tell the truth, I can see how people will still play it. I'm actually think I think that it will still be successful. Cause, but it's not going to be like, you know, actual monopoly. It's going to be just for fun. It's like a fun edition. Right. People so just to laugh at it. Any like in Monopoly at the end of the day, you know, mind you, I'm not sure how the game of Monopoly really ends because usually everybody's exhausted by the time they're finished or somebody's broke. And I mean, usually everybody figures out their own way how to end the game. But it, it usually the winner is determined by who has the most stuff, cash and property yeah. and such. Who? How do you win in uh, Millennium Monopoly? Well, I believe that each uh, different location, kind of like where you have experiences that you buy this experience like of doing something and they all have value of experience and the, at the end of the game whoever has the most valuable experience of the life wins the game so i guess the message is like yeah it's not all about possessions you can have fun and enjoy and have a meaningful and full life just by you know going and having a so constant- why do you need a house so, Constantine, this is less about uh, accumulating stuff and property and what have you, and more about fulfilling the items on your bucket list, it sounds like. Yes. It's, well, and it's the truth, honestly, I don't bucket list. This is average and mass of people. Like, I don't know why it's only millennials who, like, you know, crash on the couch, because I'm pretty sure people from before did it as well. <laughs> And um, going out for a concert, I'm like, again, everybody did it as well. But, you know, for us, apparently, I guess it looks like more of an achievement. So how do you think this is going to play with millennials? Do you think they're going to, it sounds like they might take that this game's a shot at them as opposed to something that's trying to capture their attention. Yeah, but you would be surprised. The majority of people who I talked about it, who are millennials, they just laugh at it. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's funny. It's we understand that the people, it's a norm right now. This is how people see us. Right. They can't really do anything about it other than laugh at it and just like, you know what? We might as well just enjoy it and play through that and just have a laugh. There's been a bazillion different versions of Monopoly uh, for all different types and, 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 and so on and so forth. Do they still outpace, do they outpace the original at all? Does the original still sell the best? No, original you can beat. I have to, because we tried, we actually had a, I wouldn't say issue, but we didn't think about carrying for a while the basic Monopoly mm-hmm. in our store. Yeah. And we were like, you know what, maybe people don't want this Monopoly. And for a couple of months, we didn't have it in stock. And every day, somebody would come up, do you guys have a Monopoly? You guys, do you have a Monopoly? Just basic Monopoly. We, we, like, we gave up. Okay, that's it. We bring in Monopoly. <laughs> Isn't that something? There you go. Old, yeah. uh, old. What else stands the test of time like a Monopoly? Well, people still play Clue. Yeah. And that's another one, Scrabble, obviously. Yeah. Uh, classic games actually getting more and more recognition now, like chess, checkers, Mexican train. Like, we've been doing very well on them, too. And people seem to be much more interested in them in general. All right, Constantine Barriotov uh, has been with us, owner, Board Game Central Incorporated. That is located in Jackson Square, and business is good, says Constantine. Thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated.
Thank you. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.